This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Friday, February the 10th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, it's Friday, so that means the weekly news panel assembles three topics on deck today with Michelle McQuig and Joyda Gupta, including the topic of several labor disputes. Chat about the Law Society of Alberta's vote to keep mandatory Indigenous education courses. And we contemplate the debate around or wokeness out of control. Let's begin the show with the top story of the day. Stats Canada is out with their job numbers this morning. Stats Canada says the economy added 150,000 jobs in January. The unemployment rate did hold steady at 5%. Analysts at RBC had predicted there would only be 5,000 jobs added in January. And wages were up 4.5% year over year. That's a data just coming across the wire about 20 minutes ago. So we'll get some analysis for you on Monday. Let's move over to healthcare, a topic that we've been all over this week. Federal ministers have met with provincial leaders in Ontario to discuss the proposed healthcare deal. Ontario Premier Doug Ford says the meeting went well. It was a very productive meeting. Uh, there's still a little bit of work to do. And again, uh, I always stress this, we have to consult with all the, the premiers right across the, the country, but it was a very positive, positive meeting. Federal Intergovernmental Affairs Minister Dominique Leblanc says health care is a shared priority. Uh, an issue that all of us care about deeply. Uh, Premier Ford and the Government of Ontario in our federation uh, have been and will always be leaders in these kinds of issues across the country. Shifting gears to a different story, the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs is expected to discuss the ongoing search for remains of two Indigenous women at a Winnipeg area landfill. Karen Rebo has the story. The group will update media today following the federal government's commitment of a half million dollars for a feasibility study on the proposed search. Police believe the remains of Morgan Harris and Mercedes Myron were sent to the Prairie Green landfill last spring. The two women are among four alleged victims of Jeremy Skabicki, who has been charged with first-degree murder. Police initially rejected the idea of a search, citing the passage of time, lack of a precise location within the landfill, and the time Tons of material dumped in the area since. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. And finally, British Columbia's Auditor General released a report that shows Indigenous people in prison are receiving worse mental health and addiction services than other inmates. Nicole Reese has more. Michael Pickup says his office looked at 92 sample files from people jailed in eight of the province's 10 institutions between 2019 and 2021 and found inconsistent assessments, care plans and support programs upon their release. The audit found gaps in monitoring and oversight of access to care due in part to limitations in the Provincial Authority's health information system. A statement from Pickup's office says it undertook the audit because colonialism and discrimination have caused socioeconomic inequalities 
leading to an overrepresentation of Indigenous people in the provincial justice system, and 90% of those in custody had a diagnosed mental health or substance use disorder. Nicole Reese, the Canadian Press. That's your look at the news. Let's shift over to the daily polls. On Thursday, you were asked, what is your preferred web browser? 55% of you said Chrome, 23% of you said Safari, 4% of you said Edge. Y'all have to join me out here on the Edge. And 18% of you said Firefox. So y'all voted at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. And a few of you wrote in here, and Craig tweets in at Accessible Media, Brave, it's basically Firefox with a baked-in ad blocker. Thought that one was really interesting coming in from Craig. I'd never heard of Brave. And Drika Delanerol, our senior producer, and I ended up Googling it. Pretty neat. So Brave, Firefox with a baked-in ad blocker. Miss Cantora tweets in at Accessible Media, Chrome, without a doubt, and Clayton posted on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. Firefox is my preferred, but I also like Safari. Thank you to everybody who voted at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. It's been a very intense week in the news, so let's take a couple of moments to have some fun. The Super Bowl is on Sunday, Advertisers in the U.S. are shelling out as much as $7 million for a 30-second commercial during the game, including this fun one from T-Mobile featuring John Travolta, Donald Faison, and Zach Braff. Try T-Mobile, it sets up so fast. Like Wi-Fi that runs on 5G. Home internet from T-Mobile? Wait till you see. Tell me more, tell me more. One cord's all that you need. Tell me more, tell me more. Don't you worry about speed. I can't believe it. It's just 50 bucks. Why pay more? Paying more sucks. Yeah, I don't think we need the full ad there, but you get the point. People are having a little bit of fun with some nostalgia going into the Super Bowl. There's also expected to be Alicia Silverstone uh, taking on her role of Claire from Clueless, so that's going to be fun too. Super Bowl coming your way on Sunday. I am excited for the football. Brock Richardson and I will get in earnest into some football conversation in about an hour's time. But in the meantime, today's daily poll also relates to the Super Bowl at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. And whether you like the game or not, I know y'all love some snacks. So what is the best Super Bowl snack? And if you don't see your option listed, you better write in. You better do it. But the options that I've picked, chicken wings, nachos, pizza, chili. There's some classics there. Of course, things like mozzarella sticks and jalapeno poppers, sliders, didn't make the cut for my final list, but they could certainly be voted on if we had to get down to business on this one. Alex Smythe, what is your favorite Super Bowl snack? Uh, well, certainly it has to be uh, chicken wings, Dave. I think it's just a, a classic staple. But going back to that that sound clip, I mean, so we, we got John Travolta doing Grease. We got Donald Faison and... Uh, uh, Zach Braff from Scrubs, and then there's Alicia Silverstone being clue. Is, is the advertising just being targeted at people who are 30 plus now? Is that is that really what's happening? Well, but, if, we're, if we're talking about Greece, that's probably people who are like 60 well, plus. I, I added the plus to that. But <laughs> yeah. Sorry, sorry to die. Uh, die uh, no, no, from, that's from fair. The bowl. But uh, yeah, getting back to it, chicken wings. I think specifically when it comes to the Super Bowl, it, they've always been 
tied to it. It's always been advertised to it. Chili to me just seems weird for any sort of oh. like party or get together because something inherently in my brain makes me think you have to eat something with your hands. You know, there has to be some sort of handheld or hand grabbed uh, items. So like, you know, the nachos, the pizza, the chicken wings all work together there. The chili just is such an outlier to me. I, I don't think I would ever do chili for a Super Bowl party. I would do it on a, a, a standard Sunday watching football, but not when I'm hosting people. You know what I mean? You you want to talk about chicken wings a little bit later in the show as part of the roundtable with Nisreen and Ramya. So I, I don't want to burn too much into my chicken wing mm -hmm. take here. But something to bear in mind, even as I write these down, there are two different ways to consume the Super Bowl. There is the going to the bar, which is what I'm going to do, or these there's the throwing a party, hosting people. Yeah. And the way in which you engage in the consumption of the Super Bowl may influence your answer. Because again, I don't want to get too far into the chicken wing thing with you, yeah. but I would argue that even when hosting a party, chicken wings are a little bit impractical because all of a sudden bones are everywhere. Now there's a million plates and napkins. It's kind of wild. Nachos don't really work in the home environment either, unless you have sort of a specific eating area. But as soon as there's say more than five to eight people over, even the nachos become a little bit impractical. So at the at-home experience, that's where pizza comes in handy, right? You get a couple plates, throw a couple boxes on a table. You can get some nice vegetarian options. You can get stuff for the carnivores. Everybody's happy. Well, maybe not the vegans, but but how much can how much can we do to help help people who don't want to help themselves? Um, sorry, sorry, vegans. My apologies. <laughs> there are uh, vegan pizzas out there. Pizza Pizza has a great option, so you they can be included. Yes, I know. I know. Also, just the plain tomato pizza, like a plain yeah. tomato Roma pizza. Oh my gosh, delicious. So I, I sorry, I didn't mean to take a shot there unnecessarily. <laughs> but but I would say that if you're going to a bar, when I envision the chili situation at a bar. Because I think that would be my vote. I went to a great Super Bowl party in Las Vegas in 2012 where they had a big bowl of chili and then they just had different things you could put the chili on around the pot of chili. When you go to a bar, I kind of envision the personal plate with a chili dip right in the middle and then maybe some tortilla chips or some pitas, or some hot dogs, something you can add the chili to, or, oh my gosh, chili cheese fries. <laughs> now we're talking Dave's language. So I, I get why you're questioning the chili maybe as a component of a home party, but if somebody else is going to be dealing with the dishes or dealing with the cleanup afterwards, then that's where I think chili really comes in handy. Yeah, I, I didn't think of it as a like at bar option because I've, I've done a couple of Super Bowls at a bar and uh, typically still I, I would still go with the handhelds. I don't know what it is. I think it's something ingrained in my brain where it's like, oh, it's football's on. I need to have something in my hands. It's not going to be a spoon. It's not going to be dipping. Although I, I, I will say, I never thought of chili as a dip. Whoa. That's that's an interesting one, Dave. Although you, you mentioned hot dogs. You, you lost me there. But you have me with pita and tortilla chips. Okay, well, fair enough. Fair enough. We all, we all have our own ways. <laughs> Alex, you are taking Monday off. I'm very jealous. Yep. What are you doing for the Super Bowl? Uh, yeah, so, you know, I'm keeping it very small. Um, I've done it in the past where I've had these big big parties, having 20 people over. But then oftentimes I find I'm one of the few people who actually enjoy watching the game. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I've kind of made the conscious decision, okay, I'm going to keep it small. I got a friend of mine whose birthday is on uh, Tuesday, on Valentine's Day, ironically. But uh, he's not a huge football fan either. But I was like, okay, you know what? 
I'll have you guys over. It's his wife, his his daughter, and I'll have a, another friend of ours over. And it's just going to be like five, six of us. Nice. We'll have some food. We're we're going to have some wings. We're also going to have a bunch of dips. So it's just a bit more casual. I can still watch the game. I can still engage with them. They feel a part of the evening, even though no one else really who's attending watches football. I can still kind of tune them out while they have yeah. like conversation and I can still watch the game. <laughs> Fair enough. Alex, one last Super Bowl question. I won't have okay. time probably between now and the end of the show to ask you, so I've got to ask it now. Who's winning the game? Who you got? Yeah, so actually uh, bet a bit of money on the game. I'm going with Philadelphia just based on the fact that they are far healthier than Kansas City. McCole Hartman's hurt. Patrick Mahomes is dealing with a high ankle sprain, which is very nasty, and we saw in the last two uh, games in the divisional and championship round, he can barely run, let alone put pressure on that ankle. He's had a couple of weeks to recover, but I still think that's going to impact him, especially with that Philadelphia pass rush, which has stars littered throughout, and they can rotate two lines deep and mm-hmm. still get after the quarterback. So I think that's really going to be the difference there. That's good analysis. We'll dive a bit deeper with Brock Richardson in about an hour's time. In the meantime, you should vote on the poll at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, at Accessible Media on Twitter. What's the best Super Bowl snack? Chicken wings, nachos, pizza, chili. Or, of course, if you want to write in, you can go off the board. We always appreciate when you do that. Just like we always appreciate Alex sharing the national weather updates. Here is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Starting off in St. John's, Newfoundland, it's mainly cloudy. The high is minus 6, but with that wind chill, it makes it feel like minus 18. In Halifax, Nova Scotia, it's a bit of an ugly day today. It's rain and possible freezing rain this morning, and then it'll be cloudy in the afternoon, but there is up to 10 millimeters expected to fall. There's also wind gusts up to five, uh, 50 kilometers per hour, and the high is 9 degrees. In Montreal, Quebec, there's periods of rain throughout the day and wind gusts up to 70 kilometers per hour. The high is three degrees. In Ottawa, Ontario, there's rain and possible snow off and on today. The high is one degree. Here in Toronto, Ontario, it's cloudy with a chance of rain today and wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour. The high is four degrees. In Thunder Bay, Ontario, it's a mix of sun and clouds with possible snow this morning but it is clearing up in the afternoon. The high is minus six and it's feeling like minus 21 with that wind chill. In Winnipeg, Manitoba, it start with sunshine as we move our way westward. So it's sunny today. There are wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. The high is minus three, but with that wind chill it makes it feel like minus 22. The sunshine continues as we head our into Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, where there's also wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. The high is three degrees, but with those strong winds, it makes it feel like minus 17. In Calgary, Alberta, it's sunny as well. The high is six degrees, but minus 10 with that wind chill. Up in Edmonton, Alberta, very similar. It's sunny, a high of six degrees, slightly warmer with the wind chill making it feel like minus eight degrees. In Yellowknife, Northwest Territories, it's getting that sunshine as well, but it is becoming a mix of sun and clouds as the day goes on. The high is minus 19, and with that wind chill makes it feel like minus 36. In Vancouver, BC, it is mainly cloudy with rain expected throughout the day. There is also a risk of thunderstorms and hail as well, so be careful if you're out and about today. 
the high is 10 degrees. And finally, in Victoria, BC, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of rain. The high is 9 degrees today. That's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up next, the weekly news panel kicks off with a discussion about several labour disputes happening within Canada and across the globe. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's Friday, so you know what that means. It's time to assemble the weekly news panel. Let's welcome into the show the panelists, Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. Hey, good morning, Joita. Good morning, Dave. And hello, Michelle. Hi, Dave and Joita. So I get to engage in the first topic today. I am the holder of topic number one, and I want to talk about labor strife. There are a lot of labor issues popping up across Canada and abroad. There are faculty strikes at Memorial University in Newfoundland and Labrador. There is a brewing labor dispute between WestJet and some of their employees. Yellowknife has locked out city employees amidst a tricky negotiation. There have also been significant strikes in England over the last few months. And there were protests in France this week over pension reform. Now, I just cherry-picked a few. There are plenty more stories to pick from, whether it be a brewing dispute between Ontario and the nurses' union, whether it be the <laughs> education workers' issues that we saw in Nova Scotia and Ontario in the fall. So there's plenty of places where this is occurring. Michelle, was this an inevitability <clears throat> considering a few years of relative labour peace during the pandemic? And relative is a very important word there because there certainly were labour issues during the pandemic. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. There were. Um, I, I, it's, I, I don't know about inevitability, and I don't know if if COVID was necessarily the only factor at play, but I don't think it's terribly surprising in light of that relative calm, like you said. But also before COVID, there was a certain amount of of fear in in some labor, excuse me, labor circles that there was too much of a crackdown and that big power was losing some of. It. I can talk. I really, really promise I can. That big labor was losing some of its negotiating power and hadn't had the same degree of impact or success that they'd seen in recent years. So maybe this is a combination of, of things of just a bit more mobilizing. Uh, I, I can't help but imagine that the inflation situation that we all find ourselves in right now is also fueling things. It's certainly making uh, arguments for wage increases a little bit easier uh, on, on that side of things. So I, I, I don't know if I would have said it was inevitable, but I, I don't think I'm terribly surprised by this one. I, I think the argument that I'm making about relative labor peace has to do with the fact that a lot of unions were kind of told to button it up for a year or 18 months saying, hey, no one wants to hear your grievances. We're all going through some trouble right now. And in certain cases, they were legislated that way. Ontario put in legislation that froze public se sector uh, wage increases during mm -hmm. the course of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So there was, certain, there was something there. That and it's was still in place, that, it's that, worth noting. That, that, that there was something going on that was sort of saying everybody get in line while we try to get through this and I think to a certain degree that was accepted maybe through gritted teeth but now in this moment when things I, I hate using the word normalcy but as things start coming a little bit back to the more straightforward world that we know that there was going to be a reaction that said hey we played ball for you for a couple of years where's our reward at the end of the rainbow Joita what do you make of my assertion here that about an, inevit an inevitability considering relative labor peace? 
I think you've picked up on an interesting trend, Dave. Um, I appreciate that you brought together many disparate stories and connected them as well as you have and paint a picture of labor unrest and the, some of the sizzling tension we see play out in various venues, be it in Canada or abroad. And, you know, that was well done. Uh, like Michelle, I hesitate to say it was inevitable. I take your point about how labor was in large part expected to get in line during the pandemic. Everybody was supposed to be rowing in the same direction. And now uh, some of those previously unresolved grievances have come to the fore. But I wanted to also to pick up on something Michelle said earlier about the impact of, of COVID and, and run with that idea a little bit. Um, I think that COVID did have an impact on workers, especially if you look at uh, the healthcare sector. You had a lot of workers extremely burnt out, overworked, underpaid, mm. really feeling that they had their backs against the wall. A number of educators and teachers were similarly put in a position where they felt like they had to do a lot with very little. And I think what COVID did fundamentally is bring about these seismic shifts in how people actually worked. Now, I'm not talking about all workers. I think a few weeks ago we talked about blue collar work versus white collar work. But for a number of white collar employees, suddenly they were working remotely and they realized I don't have to slave away. I can work in a more reasonable fashion. I can have a, an improved work-life balance. I can reorganize my life in such a way that I have time to spend with the kids and to make a home-cooked meal. And above and over the points around inflation, I think we've seen other struggles take place between employers and workers. One of the things we're seeing a lot of now is employers saying, okay, guys, I think the pandemic's more or less over. You've got to come back to start working in the office. And workers are pushing back and saying, no way. Mm -hmm. We now feel there are better ways to work. So yes, the inflation is a big piece of it. But so too is how people are actually relating to their jobs. Don't forget, we had this whole conversation about quiet quitting and the fact that people were saying we're just going to do as much as we need to do and we're not going to go above and over so how people are relating to their jobs how people are actually working has undergone a significant shift due to the pandemic i think changes we would not have seen come about to the extent that we have had the pandemic not taken place mm -hmm. and i think that has played into the present climate you both Fair said yeah, yeah. You, you both said the words inflation I, I i prefer to use the word cost of living as as a way of of approaching this because you guys are probably so sick of me talking about the 2008 financial crisis, but so much of where we sit today <laughs> has to do with the 2008 financial crisis. And inflation was relatively low for the better part of 14 years. Housing costs went up quite a bit over the course of 14 years in Canada, but overall inflation and cost of living were very low for 14 years. Now, there was a big concern that costs were still going up more than wages over the course of those 14 years because after the OA financial crisis, once again, employees and big, and big unions were told, no, 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 get in line. We're in the middle of a crisis. Stop asking for too much. Are you noticing a theme here that any time there's always a crisis, there's yeah. always a crisis that says, oh, get in line. Don't ask for too much everybody's struggling yeah everybody's struggling because you keep asking labor to stop taking things sorry as i fly my union oh, flag Dave. here on yeah. the show um but i am curious because there was a historic spike in cost of living that went beyond housing it went to everything else over the course of the last 12 months joita i know you said it's not strictly inflation but how much do you think cost of living has played into this Oh, it's the, I would say it's 80 to 90% inflation. It, there are other factors, and I didn't want to downplay the inflation issue at all, but I wanted to give some room to the other mm -hmm. issues that we're talking mm -hmm. about. But it is all about inflation. You're right. It wasn't just housing costs, costs although those have now gone through the roof. Um, 
you know, if you think about tenants whose rents are unregulated, any any tenant in Ontario who lives in a home built after 2018 November, you are looking at 10% rent increases, 11% rent increases. The Bank of Canada just hiked interest rates. If you're a mortgage holder and your mortgage is up for renewal, you are shaking in your boots mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. you're looking at a 6 to 7% um, increase. So that's just housing costs. That's setting aside, and we've had conversations about this, so I won't dredge it up again, conversations about the rising pa- cost of gas, the rising cost of groceries. That's really hitting Canadians where it hurts the most. So, of course, inflation has really played into this, and what employers or management is still offering the one to two percent wage increases over three years that's just not going to cut it anymore in fact you see um many prominent examples for example uh there's a you know in ottawa there uh, the the public sector union is is asking for wage increases in the double digits so these two sides are so far apart one percent versus two percent is what management is prepared to offer but employees and their unions are asking for increases in the the double digits in order to deal with inflation and i hate to say that inflation is not going away we still are dealing with the aftermath and the fallout of the pandemic and the war in ukraine i'm not an economist but i would speculate that inflation is not going to go back down anytime soon and i had to ask my husband about this because the last time inflation went up as much as it is now as much as it has now, it was in the 1970s, the late 1970s, you also saw a spike in labor strife. So yes, it all the bedrock of this of this issue, the bedrock of the strife, the underlying issue is inflation, but it's not the only one. Joita, it does not bother me that you got involved in the economic speculation there, because considering the forecast that economists have been wrong on for the last eight, eight months or so, uh, you're as competent as they are. So you should give yourself a pat on the back. Uh, Michelle, I know there's something, Captain, obvious to this question, but how much has the cost of living spike played into this? I, I'm with Joita. I think it's been absolutely huge. And she was talking about some of the disparities between union requests or and wages and management offers we are seeing that in, in some of the domestic labor issues that you brought to light here so for instance the out, out east there's actually a few faculty strikes going on you talked about memorial uh, but there's one at cape breton university mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. in both cases those faculty members are requesting i believe it was 14 15 percent in terms of wages possibly 18 in any event well over double digits but we're seeing that as a much more routine kind of request we saw that with the teachers union strife last year as well in ontario um, or education workers i should say um i think so is right i think with inflation being as as broad spectrum as it is now and with a lot of it having repercussions on work you know, you try operating a big rig truck with the gas prices you've got going on today. Not that, it's, not that these guys are, are all unionized, but some are. And those kinds of costs, I, I think, make it a little bit easier to garner some some sympathy, at least in the public, because we, we've you've seen, along with some other rises of things, we've, we've talked about the rise in populism. With that comes a degree of anti-union sentiment. I think these kinds of inflation oriented asks and requests you take the wind out of some labor opponents sales when you have arguments like this when you're saying guess what wages have only gone up you know three or four percent over the past 10 years meanwhile cost of living has increased upwards of 15 percent or thereabouts i'm picking some of these numbers at random but i think the point stands Uh, the inflation requests i think not only 
make it very clear why this kind of pushback is happening, but make it a little easier for it to gain momentum. Mm. Mm -hmm. Let's look abroad here. I I think we can skip over England because what a lot of what we just talked about is the case in England. But let's move over to France, where that government is talking about pension reform. To put put this like very, very, very simply, they're trying to increase the retirement age by a couple of years. And I'm personally not surprised that people in France are so upset by the idea of increasing the retirement age. They have a history of public protests, and I'm not simply talking about the guillotines. How do you think something (laughs) like that would fly in Canada, Michelle? I'm trying to recall some similar CPP reforms proposed a few Mm -hmm. years ago. Am I imagining that? You are not imagining that, and it's actually quite interesting because it was set to take effect this year. Uh, Back in 2012, the Harper government at the time floated an idea to raise the retirement age or the age at which CPP and other benefits would kick in to 67. Uh, That was announced pretty quietly, but then ultimately introduced in the budget, but it was going to be phased in, and that increase was only going to really start happening this year in 2023. It was going to be phased in over the next few after that. Um, That was something that the Trudeau government scrapped almost immediately upon taking power in 2015, and we haven't had the conversation since, but you probably do remember there were not any kind of widespread protests. It's very interesting. Um, in light of the fact that we were looking at the exact same change, that that didn't get the same kind of pushback. Now, I don't know if that has to do with um, some of the economic arguments around that change that were being made here, if they were falling on more receptive ears, if Canada's less active protest movement, which I, I would argue applies on a number of fronts uh, relative to other countries, was a factor here. I don't know what it was, but certainly we were looking at the same situation and and didn't have that same degree of, of involvement with, from the people. Juita, how do you think that would fly in Canada if that conversation reemerged? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, Michelle sum, summed it up really well, and you're right, we didn't see massive street protests like we did in France, but one of the things Justin Trudeau did say was he was going to cancel it if he was elected. And I think Canadians protested in other ways by voting Trudeau into office and uh, telling the Conservative government that they could take their um, hike to the retirement age. And, you know, and so it is just um, I, I, I think. Uh, maybe we didn't see as a visible a protest, but I do think Canadians uh, protested in other ways. You mm. saw that it was one of the things that the the Trudeau government cancelled pretty much right away. Otherwise, we'd have seen that change come into effect this year. So, yeah, I think maybe the, the substance of the protest in Canada was different, but it's certainly something that people weren't overjoyed about. I don't I didn't see a lot of support for it either. As you said, it was snuck in very quietly. And you have to wonder why it was slunk in as quietly as it was. Mm. What is it that they were actually afraid of? That said, though, there were three years between the introduction of that measure and when that election took place. And that wasn't particularly a hot button issue on the campaign trail. Mm, yeah, it's fair. Uh, thank you both for exploring these issues of labor strife with me. I have a sneaking suspicion we will be revisiting this a few times over the course of the next couple <laughs> of months. But coming up next, the Law Society of Alberta has voted to keep mandatory Indigenous education courses for its members. We'll take a closer look at some of the implications. This is the Now, the now News Panel on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. Let's address our next topic. The Law Society of Alberta has voted in favour of keeping a requirement for its members to complete a course on Indigenous history and culture. The vote stemmed from a petition filed last week by 51 lawyers. They argued that the society should, be, should not be mandating courses related to the practice of law. That vote was not close. 75% of society members voted in favour of keeping the regulation. British Columbia's Law Society has a similar requirement and the Ontario Society requires its members to take mandatory courses on sexual harassment and abuse. Michelle, why did this topic get your attention? Yeah, this topic got my attention actually before the vote happened. And it, well, I think that's what really struck me was the issue that it was turning on. There, there were kind of two parts to it. A, there was the objection to this course specifically, which was looking at Indigenous history and culture. Uh, but more than that was the broader issue of people objecting to the idea of having any kind of continuing education and being required to take courses. Um, some people framed their objection along the lines of the course itself. Others framed it more broadly. And that's kind of what jumped out at me was the, the two-pronged nature of this one. Um, I was interested in this in the story before the vote took place on Monday from the Law Society. And I remained interested in it afterwards because, no, the vote was not close, but we are still talking about hundreds of people in one province practicing one profession that were opposed to the idea of, A, learning about Indigenous history and culture and slash or continuing education at all. So I, I thought that would be worth looking into considering exactly how many self-regulated, pretty crucial professions we have in this country. Julia, your reaction to the story? Yeah, I think Michelle summed it up really well. I think there are a couple of key issues here, and I couldn't have done a better job of articulating them. Uh, Michelle has laid it out. I think it's really worthwhile to think about the um, the layers to this conversation. Um, when we think about pathways, which is the continuing education training that people were asked to, that people are now required to take as part of the uh, their admission to the Alberta bar. Uh, and and, and the, what is mandated by the Law Society, it's basically a five-hour free training that you can do online. And there's been over six years of consultation and study to put this course together. Some could argue it's a minimal response to a recommendation in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report. And there are a number of overarching issues that are brought into play. But again, if you look at the second part of, of this whole conversation, the second prong about um, the rulemaking ability of the law society and whether they overreached in this instance by mandating continuing education and uh and and ordering suspension of people who didn't complete the continuing education classes i think it also brings up this larger question about uh the fact that many of these uh professions lawyers in, included are self-regulated but they're supposed to be self-regulated in the public interest so there's a, a much bigger argument here as michelle pointed out what does it mean when hundreds of people in a province either feel that they don't have to or don't want to undertake any form of continuing education and when we think about the population of alberta which has a high indigenous population um what are the particular resonances when people also object on the basis of the specifics of the course they were being asked to take. You used a term there, Juita, that really puts the nail on the head 
for this conversation, which is public interest. Yes. When you do jobs that are very frontline, that have a really, really major impact on policy and the way in which people are going to be interacting and dealing with systemic barriers, it's really important that you understand what you're doing is in the public interest. And oftentimes, over time, the public interest can shift. Our social mores and ethics and morals will move and evolve. And it's worth saying that if you are someone who works in these public interested fields, that you are keeping up with the times. Uh, Michelle, I'm cannibalizing some of your thoughts here, but <laughs> when you think about other professions like education, like other people who work in the law, like police officers or judges or people in the medical system, it's really important that, that you understand systemic bias and systemic racism. Michelle, I've made the argument on this show that I believe journalists should be doing ongoing uh, training about, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, okay, I'm gonna use yeah. a word here. I'm gonna use a word here that, that like people might just like brush off their shoulders and say, ah, there's the snowflake, but sensitivity training more broadly <laughs> to understand what systemic bias is across marginalized people can actually be really beneficial to the way that you do your job. It can also be mm -hmm. really beneficial to the way that you serve people and the way that you interact with people. So the, the importance of this conversation as Juita hit is the, pub the public interest and what is your requirement if you work in a very public facing job to serve the public interest michelle that was my really rambly way of asking you just sort of your general reaction to this story and the notion of educating people for the sake of public interest i really both of you have have taken the thoughts right out of my head this is exactly why this kind of thing is interesting and it was it was it was fascinating with this story in particular to see the reaction mobilized along those lines, that those who were in favor of continuing education and wanted to see this course go ahead were framing it exactly like this, because I do think that's the central issue. They're saying, we can't keep practicing law like it's the 1980s. It's not the 1980s any longer. And that is exactly right, especially when we we have other kinds of social conversations happening all around. It It seems wild to me to have one that would be involved in the administration of justice that would be exempt from those kinds of conversations. Uh, so I think that that was, that was really the crux of the matter. And I think about other education adjustments, anytime there's you know updates to a school curriculum or university curricula or whatnot, there always seems to be a bit of pushback, but the general consensus seems to be, well, curricula need to evolve with the times. And I, I really don't see, in fact, I see extra incentive to ensure that's the case at a professional level, not just uh, sort of in an academic sense. Yeah, and, and I played a story from one of your colleagues, Michelle, in the first segment of the show about a report, an audit out of British Columbia about the disproportionate way in which people, uh, Indigenous people in prison are not receiving the same mental health and addiction supports as their counterparts. And again, that speaks to the importance of understanding systemic barriers and systemic she bias does. when there are people yep. who are being disproportionately impacted. Sorry, Juita, I wandered off there for a moment, but, but I wanted to give you maybe the opportunity to reflect specifically on the importance of, of, of these conversations when we're talking about marginalized people. Yes, exactly. And when we think about Indigenous people in particular, we now have the findings and recommendations from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the report from the Missing and Murdered uh, Women and Girls uh, Commission. That has all... Point There's been... Uh, the Gladue report that came out many years ago talking all of these things have we have covered this ground over and over and over again, especially when it comes to indigenous uh, 
issues and the treatment of indigenous people within our justice system. Uh, indigenous people are more likely to be policed and over-policed, more likely to be incarcerated. And, and um, there was an excellent report you pointed out uh, that, that was covered earlier in the in the, in the the headlines at the top of the program, talking about how indigenous people were not getting the same access to services around mental health treatment and wellness in, in prisons. And so these issues are A, very complex, and B, we've talked about them a lot. And there is a lot to be said for, and I'm sorry I'm not a lawyer by training, but um, in some of the reading and research I did for this, there are a number of Supreme Court decisions that point out that training lawyers and other professionals on human rights and equity issues is in the public interest. Mm -hmm. Training people uh, on indigenous issues is in the public interest. I don't feel like we need to cover this ground again because we put a lot of burden on indigenous communities to make the case over and over again. If you'll permit me to to be perfectly blunt, I think the vote in Alberta speaks for itself. I think the majority majority of lawyers understand the importance of doing this work. They understand that if they are going to come into contact with indigenous people as prosecutors, as defense lawyers, as police officers, there needs to be some attention paid to the complexities and lived realities and the histories and the, the culture of those particular communities. What you're really seeing here in Alberta is a fringe group of lawyers using whatever means they can to try and push through something that nobody really wants. If you'll allow me to be very, if I can speak cleanly, I that's what I think is happening. Here. I'm not I'm not going to fight you on that. I'm not going to fight you on that. Uh, but I would say that it's also a perfect example of where democracy can be very useful. A fringe group of people bring, bring forward a concern and then the majority defeats them and says, no, your fringe concern is not, is not worthwhile. Uh, can I be a slight devil's advocate here? Please. The fr- yes, I, I would I would agree that it probably was a, a fringe group of lawyers behind the petition at all. But the still the fact is that you still had a quarter of the people taking part in the vote who rejected the idea of ongoing education. So theoretically, if these numbers all bear out, you would have a one in four chance in Alberta of having a lawyer who does not support the idea of continuing education. Yeah, that's a bit okay. interesting to me. Yeah, and and, th- and that's it. That's the other prong that you had here, Michelle, which I do think is interesting. But I do, I want to pick up on something Joyda mentioned before that this particular course was developed through extensive consultation, and it was also it's also not particularly onerous to get through. Five hours is not a particularly difficult self learning no. module to get through. So I do believe that it, it is worth at least discussing that if you are asking people to do whether it's this training in continued education or whether it's other forms of sensitivity training or continued education, the course does need to be well-developed. It needs to be well thought out and it shouldn't be overly onerous to get through. So, I, I mean, I've sat through some disability awareness trainings where I'm like, who is this person? Why on earth right? are they doing this? They are terrible. They're setting the movement back 25 years. So, oh, and also these slides are inaccessible to screen readers. <laughs> okay, yeah, there's that too. But, but yeah, so I, so I do believe like as we're talking about this, there is there certainly is a question of caliber and quality, but it appears in this case, this path, this path, the PATH program is one that was really well considered and well developed. Joita, it sounded like you wanted to get in on that. Well, yes, exactly. And if you start to object to one form of training, are you going to keep objecting to everything else? The next exactly. training that they should actually be considering is accessibility training and in uh, for law for lawyers and other professionals in the law. I would actually get behind that idea 100%. But again, you're going to have a fringe group of people saying we don't want to do it because we don't feel that the, the, because we feel that this is an overreach of the law society. And I think it's been uh, affirmed through this vote that it's not an overreach of the law society's rulemaking ability. Uh, I read an article where, you know, the the author of the article is a law professor and he tells his students, once you become a lawyer and you join the bar, the bar dictates 
the rest of your life. So you better get used to it. And I hate to say it, but a little bit of a, you know, take a bit, you take your, swallow your bitter pill or take your medicine is an order here. Uh, because if they're objecting to this one training, they're going to object to others. And I think it A, ties up resources and B, forces us, including people from marginalized groups to have painful conversations over and over again. Yeah. Uh, to say nothing of the fact that if you really object and if you really quibble, about self-regulation, then what do you want? Unregu- I don't think anyone's really going to support the idea of these professions being unregulated. <laughs> I know Mike Ross got away with practicing law without a license, but that only ever happens in suits. I don't think the general public is going to get behind that idea. Do you want the government to step in? There are activists who have said, especially when it comes to the police, that self-regulation is just like the fox watching the hen house. Maybe we should have government oversight, perhaps as an alternative to self-regulation, if you're really that unhappy about it. We should be talking about greater government oversight of lawyers because lawyers and judges have huge impacts yeah. on people's lives. Joanna, you stunned me there for a second. I thought you were talking about our colleague, Mike Ross, for a second. That I was like, wait, 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 hold on. Yeah, well, I, I, but you were referring <laughs> the to the reaction. yeah, you were referring to the TV show Suits. So before uh, Mike's lawyers get on the uh, get on the horn with us, not talking about our dear friend Mike Ross, who's going to be filling in for Alex on Monday after the <laughs> Super Bowl. Um, guys, if you'll allow me here, let, let's at least hit Michelle's last prong for for uh, uh, two minutes because it is it is worth asking the question about what other professions might benefit from ongoing education and sensitivity training. I cannibalized a little bit. I, I, I hit my list. But Michelle, as you think about it, are there professions that come to mind that you think would really benefit from ongoing sensitivity training? I'm going to keep using that sensitivity training because I think that is the right way to put it. Again, working under the caveat that it's delivered properly and well. Yeah, of course. And, and that we're talking about a pretty broad umbrella here. Honestly, I think, I think most professions could benefit from some... Uh, there's... Even within the scope of this story, we talked about how we, uh, we have different, you know, facets here in terms of both Indigenous education in Alberta and BC, and sexual assaults and 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 harassment training in, in Ontario. Those are things that I think every profession could benefit from. Accessibility training is another huge one, so I would like to see that more embedded, let's say, in education, in 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 the facets of the healthcare system. Uh, there really, I can't really think of any areas that I think would not benefit from ongoing, right. up-to-date training on Ma- this kind of thing. Maybe that's a better way to frame the question. Can you imagine industries that maybe should be exempt? And, and my feeling is most likely no. Yeah, no, uh, I'm know. coming up empty, to be honest. Uh, yeah. Joe, what about you? Anything you think could actually be exempt from this? No, nothing comes to mind, to be honest with you. Yeah, okay, I think there you go. So we hit the last prong there, and, and we all found ourselves <laughs> on the same page. I love it. Uh, Michelle, thank you for bringing this topic to the table. Coming up next, we talk about the debate around keeping Valentine's Day celebrations in schools. This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. It's the Now News Panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Joey Gupta and Michelle McQuig. There's one more topic to discuss. Some schools in Ontario will not be holding Valentine's Day celebrations. Different schools have different justifications. Some call it a distraction. Some say the handing out of candy does not align with new health initiatives. And some schools have identified that it can be exclusionary. Of course, there are also parents who think this is an overreaction of utter woke political correctness. Uh, Joita, why'd you want to bring this, this story to the table? 
I admit readily that anything to do with Valentine's Day, if I read a story in the paper, I first and foremost want to dismiss it as a puff piece. Uh, <laughs> but in fact, there's Fair. actually yeah. a rare a, a range of issues that this story brings to the surface. What I hadn't realized at the time sending the article and what I found out afterwards is that the school board received a lot of blowback for mm -hmm. this decision. And it's worth considering why... Uh, this brought about a deluge of, of abuse uh, targeted at individuals within the school board, but also, as you pointed out, people saying this is political correctness gone, run amok. And yet there are some very interesting uh, issues at play here. Uh, the idea about cre creating healthy schools, financial uh, hardships on parents, inclusivity in that you don't want to uh, reinforce any form of social exclusion that kids are sometimes known for. And then how you actually balance the fact that schools are becoming increasingly multicultural and multi-faith. So this issue brings together or sits at the nexus of a number of issues I think we've touched on on this panel and is a, as good an opportunity as I need to revisit. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting story. And, and I'll confess to you that even when I was a kid, I always thought the notion of handing out like love letters and cards in class like seemed a little, seemed a little much and did seem a little unfair. Like there was something about it that seemed rather exclusionary. So I always was a little uncomfortable comfortable with the practice maybe not to the point that I ever would have said you should advocate to cancel the celebrations but I always felt like there was something odd about it Michelle as you worked through this article and thought about the story what were some of the reactions that came to mind for you yeah I honestly was it was similar to Joita in that my my knee-jerk reaction to Valentine's Day is is kind of similar and so I'm, I'm my natural inclination I would think would be to have most discussions of Valentine's Day to reduce to being a tempest in a teapot, but this does raise some interesting questions. I don't know that I, if I were a parent, would be particularly fussed about Valentine's Day. I suspect yeah. I would have other uh, battles I would prefer to fight. Um, but teach you know, my teach my kid to code. <laughs> <laughs> Sigh, um, but yeah, I, it's just I don't know. It's there are questions worth asking. I just don't know how long it's worth asking them for. Does yeah, that make sense? yeah, no, that's fair. Let's talk about some of these justifications that were laid out, uh, Joita. I'd never even necessarily considered the financial hardship side of this. Maybe it's tinged a little bit from my own privilege as growing up in a middle-class mm -hmm. family, but also the fact that a lot of the cards that we made in my elementary school, we would do in class as part of a broader arts and crafts project, so you didn't have to bring your own supplies to do it. But I'd never really considered the financial hardship side, but as soon as I started thinking about, oh my gosh, if kids are being expected to bring cards from home, now we are talking about disproportionately impacting uh, kids experiencing poverty or kids totally. from working class families. Mm -hmm. But uh, Joita, so let's, let's kind of break these down piece by piece. The financial hardship argument, where do you, where do you stand on it? I think it, it all depends. If you make cards uh, in class and everybody has access to the same supplies, I don't see a problem with that. I think it's a good activity and gets those creative juices flowing. But if you have to get people buying cards from home, that can become expensive for some people. They can't afford it. And of course, then you, if you're expected to buy chocolates and candies, you yeah. can see class privilege sneaking in in these really subtle ways. Someone buys, I don't know, uh, chocolate bars that are 50 cents a piece and somebody brings in $5 candy bars. You suddenly got this massive and visible difference between the poor kids and the rich kids. And maybe it doesn't matter in some neighborhoods, but in other neighborhoods, in other school districts, uh, the, the those those issues can rear their head heads in quite an ugly way. Michelle, the financial hardship argument, what do you make of it? Joey to put it really well. Uh, I think it that's probably of all of them, the one that held the most water with me and, and 
but fortunately it's also the one that's easiest to address i would say in yeah. terms of leveling that playing field but i do think there is some validity to that the exclusionary side of the argument that i identified that maybe resonates with me but i also understand that maybe we need to learn to the, to accept rejection in our lives early it's really helpful <laughs> when you do but um, i don't know how early in life we should be teaching kids about uh, rejection so I, I definitely think the exclusionary side of it holds some water michelle what about you <laughs> I do, and yet, the I guess a, a, a ground to my objections to Valentine's Day in general is that it's just yet one more stage on which school dynamics can play out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're not, yeah, yeah, and they're not always kind to people. Like there are, there are cliques, there are people who are left on the margins of school. That's just how school dynamics, unfortunately, play out. And Valentine's Day offers one more venue where those can be sort of <laughs> play out in plain sight and be additionally hurtful, and that's not great. But I don't think eliminating Valentine's Day is going to eliminate that dynamic at all. Yeah, because that's just going to play out in every other facet of school life. Yeah, and if we don't uh, harm kids' psyches early enough, who's going to be the theater kids in high school? You know, what oh I'm wow. Uh, hey, I was one of those theater kids. <laughs> I was one of the harmed psyches. Uh, Joanna, what do you make of the exclusionary side of the conversation? That's the part that resonates with me the most. I think, as Michelle put it, some of the school dynamics playing out in very visible ways. It's the equivalent of being, you know, in the back of the line in gym class and hoping you would not be the last kid left, uh, not picked by either side. And I think one of the other things that I noticed just in my experience, um, when I was in India, we didn't celebrate Valentine's Day. It isn't quite as big a holiday. Uh, So that didn't really come up. But we used to do friendship bracelets in early August. And the popular kids would have a stack of these friendship bracelets around their wrists. And of course, the not so popular kids got one or two or none whatsoever. But in a really, I would now say as an adult, frightening twist, I remember there was a couple of boys who were frankly just bullies. And as a way to dissuade bullying, they ended up getting a heap of these friendship bracelets. Um, you know, I, I I don't want to get into that particular issue too much, but it almost felt as though there was a dare I say it, a reward for bullying in, in school, that this was a way to try yeah. and keep bullies away from you. And that's not the way, that's not an answer to bullying. So mm. the social exclusion piece is huge, but also how does this, how does bullying manifest in these circumstances? I think that's a really important conversation to have. Yeah. It, yes. Even though there's a saint in the name of St. Valentine's Day, I never thought of this as a particularly Christian holiday. So right? I'm not all the way sure that like the multicultural or multi, multi-faith argument holds too much water here. I'd say we could spend a lot more time talking about things like Thanksgiving or Christmas mm-hmm. <laughs> on that front in regards mm-hmm. to sort of straight up faith stuff or Easter, even as more straight up faith stuff. But uh, Joita, t- t- you know, I-, I also recognize my bias here as a middle aged white guy. Um, <laughs> what do you make of the well, multi faith argument? I, I, no, I think I think it's it's a fair point. I, d- I don't think faith is the is the issue that uh, this has particularly turned on. What is interesting though is in the response uh, where no one had actually in in making a call not to have parents send cards and candies. No one had actually brought up faith at all. But where faith rears its head in this conversation is in some of the response and the backlash to the decision, Mm. where we see a lot of Islamophobia creeping in uh, to some of the objections that parents raised about, you know, quote, unquote, Muslim parents and the things like that. So I think faith is one of those things that that has been you has been weaponized uh, in in um, in discounting and dismissing this um, this decision around Valentine's Day, but it really wasn't the starting point or the origin 
of mm-hmm. why schools, schools felt maybe they need to scale back on some of the trappings of the holiday. Okay, that, that's a good clarification. I appreciate you making that clarification because I was thinking back to a lot of my elementary school experiences. Yeah, trudging up a lot of trauma with this topic for me, Juliet. I really appreciate it. But I do recall, <laughs> but I do recall uh, Mrs. Morrison, my grade four, grade three and grade four teacher, we call them celebrations, but on February 4th. Tell any reaction to the, the, the faith argument around the holiday? Yeah, I have to say, Dave, my experience was much more like yours. Uh, that was not, uh, even though I, I grew up in a pretty waspy uh, neighborhood and a tenant of school whose demographics reflected that, uh, the religious component of Valentine's Day never really entered into things. Uh, I, I had forgotten, in fact, that it has origins as a, as a Catholic holiday. Uh, but I think Joita raises some really good points. So I, on those grounds, I'm, I'm loath to dismiss those arguments completely, even if they didn't really resonate with me personally. Do we at least want to take a moment here to grapple with the idea of political correctness run amok? Because I, I do think this maybe walks towards that line, but I really don't like being on the side of the politically correct, uh, woke, anti-woke mob crowd. Right? Yeah, that, that's... <laughs> I don't like my allies. I'll put it that way. Like, I, I would at least approach the line and take a look at it and say, is this a wokeness overreach? But I would also say, like, it really doesn't hurt anybody to cancel Valentine's Day celebrations. I have to agree with you. I, I would... There's a comment at the end of the article, Joita, that you sent that I thought was an interesting one. And it was it was having... Trying to take a nuanced look without using terms like cancel culture, they, they mm-hmm. really were trying to, to take a more thoughtful approach to the matter. And just saying, you know, I, there are valid concerns to be raised here, but is canceling something really necessarily always the best solution? Should there not be times when we look for different alternatives and different solutions? And I think this might fall into that camp. We talked earlier about things like ensuring construction projects in class with, with equitable supplies and access to those supplies. Those kinds of things I would think would be a little bit more of a productive way of addressing this issue than just saying straight up canceling it. But uh, it, it is a tricky one, and I understand why people take the stance they do. Yeah. Juita, that's, la- all, that's all I'm going to yeah. get to. Ju- Juita, you, you, brought, you brought it to the table, so last word goes to you. Well, I think... Um... Canceling, straight up canceling the holiday forecloses the the opportunity to have some of those nuanced conversations that Michelle has alluded to, um, and as as you can see, the the character of our schools and the concerns that parents are raising have become so complex that I do I do I don't discount the the fact that you might want to have a deeper conversation and not just continue to celebrate Valentine's Day in the way that we always have because that's the way we've always done it so certainly it it, it merits a deeper conversation but I wouldn't go so far as to say we should cancel it altogether I mean who doesn't like to get chocolates right yeah exactly yeah. slather me in Lindors this weekend let's do it <laughs> uh Joita Michelle thank you both for this we ran a little over time so Joita instead of having you preview the pulse I'll just say that I listened to it yesterday at 1 30 p.m. Uh, p.m. Eastern when it hit live and it was excellent and people should download the podcast. Juita, have a great weekend. Thank you. You too. That's Juita Gupta, the host of The Pulse on AMI-audio. And Michelle, you have yourself a wonderful weekend as well. We'll talk to you on Monday morning. I'll be a little hungover after the Super Bowl. Sounds good. I'll be extra chirpy and annoying. Now. Uh, that's what I need. That's what, <laughs> People are going to have to carry the water for me on Monday. Michelle McQuig <laughs> is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Coming up after the break, speaking of the Super Bowl, Brock Richardson stops by for a deep dive in the sports chat. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.